This is Time Signatures with Jim Irvin, a podcast and radio program presented by the Capital Area Blues Society in Lansing, Michigan. Most any contemporary musical style can trace its roots back to the blues. Time Signatures explores the blues and its musical connections with captivating interviews, lively discussions, and news from the world of the blues. And now, here he is, your host, Jim Irvin. Hey, thank you so much, Parker. Glad to have you along, everybody. My name is Jim Irvin, and this is Time Signatures. My guest this time around on Time Signatures truly is among one of the greatest blues musicians of all time. He is the youngest of nine, count them, nine siblings. He was exposed to the guitar by his one and only sister, Clara, many years ago, as well as the three kings of the blues, B.B., Albert, and Freddie. His first release, Ambition, came out in 1990 to critical acclaim, but as they say, he was just getting warmed up. More than three decades later, he continues on. He just released his newest CD, Blues Without You, and this is a different body of work, however, and we're going to talk more about that because he teamed up with famed bluesman Joe Bonamassa. Now, if you're a follower of this blues shouter from Arkansas, you already know who he is. Larry McRae, welcome to Time Signatures, my friend. Thank you so much, my Jim. It is so good to have you on. And as you know, I've been I've been wanting to have you as a guest here for some time, but we are glad to have you aboard. So let's dive right in, Larry. I have to hear the story of Clara's introduction to you uh, to the guitar because you had your sights set on another instrument originally, didn't you? <laughs> yes, I did. I, I I really love saxophone music, and I gave that a shot in my early years too, from junior high through high school. Okay. Now, what were your earliest memories of music as you were growing up? Did you have any favorite tunes in those formative years? Oh, most definitely I did. Well, you know, I come from a small town in Arkansas called Smackover. Okay. If that gives me any indication of <laughs> the type of place that I come from, you know, it was very rural, very unsettled. You know, uh, we, were, we were just uh, people that, you know, it's a lot of people live like that in that state back in the early 60s. You know, that mm-hmm. was pretty. We were just like a whole lot of other people right. that were there. But with that being said, you know, you didn't have a whole lot of choices about anything. I mean, you know, there was a protocol and a way to live. And if you try to rebuff that or try to go a different way, you better know what you're doing or have <laughs> the means to do so. Right. As far as uh, what, the, what the music and the culture was like back in those days, you know, music was all one thing. But, you know, as time progressed, black music, as I knew it and grew up on it, became known as soul music mm-hmm. or either the blues. But, you know, back then we just we just called it music. It was good music or bad music. But, you know, as things developed, you started to get in a lot of cornholing and categorizing and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. music has evolved to what it is now. But some of my favorite music that I remember as a child, you know, I grew up on... Uh, a lot of soul music, all the soul artists were popular at that time, but you know, there was a still big appetite for blues music and artists like uh, Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, oh, yeah. Fred McDowell, you know, was uh, from the old school or from the Delta style, but I listened to a lot of Freddie King, Alvin King, B.B. King, Guitar Slim, Albert Collins, you know, all mm. the current music that was going on that leaned to a more modern sound. 
Right. Now, you were born in uh, Arkansas, but you ended up here in the great state of Michigan. I'd love to hear the story. When did your family move up here, and what brought them here? Well, my mother come from a family of 18 siblings, and many of her siblings had preceded her to Michigan. I had probably six other aunties that lived in Michigan. Okay. And like I said, you know, being from the place and location that we come from, it was hard times and rough living. My people left there looking for a better solution. So having people already that had migrated to uh, the state of Michigan, I think my mother felt comfortable with coming here. And my brother James had already come here in 1962, and my sister Clara followed in 65. And they were already living here. So Clara would always come home every year or so, and she would bring her electric guitar with her, and she would entertain the family when she would come home, usually her and my dad together. This time when she came, she told my mother that she wanted to take me back for summer vacation to her place and let Larry come back Mm. with me, which I did. And I thought when I left, I would just be coming to visit and going back home when school started back. But by the time that it was time to go back to school, the plan had changed and she told my sister to keep me here and to put me in school. Wow. And her and the rest of the family came and joined me probably about eight months later. Man, that must have been cool <laughs> to, to get up well, here. And it, get... Was a, it was a big, big transition for a kid who had never been oh, yeah. <laughs> five miles away from home. <laughs> yeah. Larry, take yeah. take me back, if you will, uh, to, to coin a phrase from one of your songs, <laughs> uh-huh. uh, to that basement studio at your friend's home in Detroit. Now, what was going through your mind as you were laying the tracks down for that first CD? Well, you know, there was a whole lot of disbelief because I had been approached many times by then. I started playing out when my first gig was when I was 17. Okay. So from the time... I was 17 on up until, you know, I'm a grown man working in the shop by now. You know, by the time I got 27, eight, nine years old, you know, I had been quite a few places uh, regionally. You know, I, I played a lot of gigs locally and close around, you know, I played all the time. And, you know, several times you would meet people and say, hey, well, you you pretty good. Why you never did this and why you never did that? Well, I'm going to do this for you and I'll do this and I'll take you here and I'll take you there. And people would tell you things and they never would there never would be any follow-up on the end of the conversation. Okay. So that's pretty much what I thought it was going on with this particular gentleman that I had met at a musician's party where there was a big picnic for musicians down in somewhere on the west side of the state. I believe it was uh of the city, I believe it was Brighton, okay. uh, somewhere down in, in that area, Brighton, Nova, somewhere over there. But it was out in the rules, and it was a beautiful place and a beautiful party. And I met this gentleman, and he told me what all he was going to do and could do. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the first three times, I never I didn't show up. Oh. And then what made me show up is the last time when I didn't show up, he called me back again in a very urgent voice and a pleading voice. said, man, you're just going to F this thing up if you don't show up. And when he said it like that, you know, I took it a little bit more serious and I gave it a chance. And the rest, as they say, is history, right? It started right there. Yes, sir. (laughs) 
Larry, you yep, over on Mac, off of Mac Nichols and Press, Press Street there in Detroit. Oh man, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. So you've shared the stage with many of the greats in the blues, including BB King, Buddy Guy, Albert King, mm-hmm. Kenny Wayne Shepherd, Joe Walsh, and of course Joe Bonamassa, among others. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had a moment where you were just overwhelmed by the realization of what was going on in those moments? Well, of course. I mean, you know, um, in the early days, you know, I, I, I had played a lot of bars and stuff, but I'd never been on a big stage. And I went right from the bars to opening up shows for Gary Moore. And mm-hmm. at that time, I didn't really know who Gary Moore was, but, oh, I found out in a hurry. You know? <laughs> and, and it just was uh, overwhelming to see that production and to see his professionalism and to hear all them dragons unleashed at one time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Gary was uh, pretty overwhelming. And to, to add, add to that, Albert King and Albert Collins was his walk-on guest every night. Mm. So I got a chance to spend in my early years many different shows in close contact with all three of them. I remember a lot about our conversation. I remember a lot about the warm-ups in the dressing room before the gig. Sure. And it's just the memories that I cherish to the grave, myself personally, you know? I have to ask you, because I, I can only imagine standing on the stage with one of the three guys that are actually two of the three guys that you grew up and idolized and, and loved in your early years, B.B. Uh, and Albert, right. that had to be something else, man, just standing there watching them command the stage, right? Dude, it took a long time before I really could uh, grasp the fact that I had met them and was in company of them and right. get a chance to play music with them. You know, I just I just couldn't couldn't bring myself to believe it until way on down the line, you know, when you come from a situation like me, I come from very humble beginning. Yes, sir. But also, it was embedded in me to keep your humility about whatever you do, but to be the best, be the strongest, be the toughest you can in everything what you do. But you don't vocalize it. You don't flaunt it. You don't say anything about it. You let it happen and let the people have their say about it, and you leave it right there. And that's the way I was taught. And with all those uh, different things going through my head, you know, I always had doubt, but sometimes I would feel assured. Sometimes I was happy. Sometimes I was, um, it, 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 was, it was a very mixed emotional time for me. It was very sure. hard to uh, put my hand on how I was feeling. I don't know. I got a chance to hang out with Pop Staples, man, mm. one time, and uh, I hung out with him all day long <laughs> because we did a TV program together in Europe. It was called the Jules Holland Show. Okay. And it's kind of like doing the Letterman Show here or something like that, except the fact that Jules was a, a musician himself. He was a accomplished piano player. And just to be on that set all day with Pop Staples, and to hear his Martin Luther King Jr. stories mm-hmm. and all the things that I lived through as a kid to talk to somebody who was part of that, that was very special also. And yeah. besides the fact that I love Mavis Staples and the Staples Singers and everything about their legacy, you know. Yeah. I have to step back just a half second here because you talked about the humble beginnings and keeping yourself in check. And I have to say that In all of the years that I've known of you 
in all of the years that I have known you personally, nobody Mm -hmm. has ever spoken an ill word about working with or sharing the stage with Larry McRae. In fact, quite the opposite has been said of your kindness, your humility, your unyielding work ethic. It's really quite a wonderful reputation that you built, my friend. Well, I I worked at it. (laughs) Yes, sir. I had, you know, everybody, um, we all feel the same emotions as human beings. And everybody can be angry. Everybody can be selfish. Everybody can do all of the wrong things as easy as we have the choice to do the right thing. But to make the right choice or to be steadfast, you know, um, it's tough sometimes. And it takes a lot of uh, being willing to compromise. And then sometimes you got to bite your tongue about a lot of things because if you address every issue, uh, every time something went wrong, you you went, that's all you would do is all and fight all the time. Mm-hmm. I try not to allow that uh, situation to have any kind of vehicle as far as I'm concerned. My guest is Larry McRae. You're listening to Time Signatures with Jim Irvin, and we are having a wonderful discussion we're going to approach a, a, a couple of subjects here. I think we're going to get some uh, some good answers out of Larry, having a, a great time talking. But I generally ask every musician that I've interviewed since the beginning of the program how the COVID pandemic affected their trajectory and their drive. And if I'm not mistaken, the height of COVID came to bear as you were working on your latest CD collaboration with Joe Bonamassa, correct? That's correct. And, uh, and the other thing, the uh, pandemic allowed me to have a break, something I hadn't had for 33 years. So right. it really saved my life because, um, you know, I was out there beating it all the time and never could uh, take a break to have a vacation or just take rest time. And, and it gave me the rest that I needed. I needed that rest, man. Right. Okay. And while we're talking about Joe, how did your project with him come to be? I would love to hear the the backstory. That must have been some conversation. It was. Um, I, I have a friend in uh, Auburn, Alabama. Okay. And his name is Steve Casseroni. And he used to always tell me all the time, he said, man, I heard one of your tunes on Joe's show. Joe said something good about you on the show. <laughs> blah, 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 blah. Joe, Joe, he would tell me about Joe all the time. I had met Joe, and I had seen Joe play a handful of times uh, in the earlier days. You know, it's just one of those things. I guess one reason that it took me so long is because I always believe that you got to stand up on your own two feet. You got to stand up on your own merit. Yes, and sir. it was hard uh, to for me to ask fellow musicians to for help or to put me in a better position because I know they was all out there fighting for themselves, you know? Mm-hmm. But uh, another thing, you know, Joe played to a very high level, a very accomplished guitar player. Yes, sir. And I'm more, um, I think I'm more original or more old school. And, you know, my style is more homemade than a lot of people. But uh, I never thought that he had the interest or never thought he would like my style of music. To my surprise, he told me that he had always admired what I did, and I was very flattered by the fact. And from that became an opportunity for you to work together, collaborate. Right. Well, oh, I, I got stuck right there. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, you're all right. But, uh, okay, I was telling you, and I said, Steve, I meant Paul, Paul Casaroni. Okay. But anyway, um, 
Paul had uh, got a number from a friend of his, Paul lived in Auburn, and so does uh, the guitarist uh, Larry Mitchell. And Larry is a, a high fusion. He played with uh, Ariana Grande. He played with uh, Tracy Chapman wow. and many other popular artists like that. He's well known. So Larry had Joe's number, and I text Joe. I said, Joe, this is uh, blues man Larry McRae. <laughs> and, um, you know, I let him know that uh, I admired what he did for my friend, Joanne Connor. And I left it that, you know, if there's any possibilities that the same opportunity would be there for me, it would be great. I would love to do it. And I got a text back in about 30 minutes. Wow. And so, you know, from that point on, we talked about it, but it was about a year down the road before we could actually get together. And, and looking back since the launch of the new album, which is Blues Without You, you've been one hell of a busy guy for the last 18 months or so, haven't you? I have been, and I, <laughs> I need you to be. I've been, I've been smiling about that. You know, I have I've went to see Buddy Guy, and one uh-huh. of the things that Buddy did during his uh, concert was he gave us a little education on the blues and how the blues was bigger in Europe, and it took off in Europe before it ever took off here. And I've noticed that uh-huh. a lot of the blues musicians do very, very well over there. Talk about that a little bit. What is what is the difference, in your opinion, between uh-huh. playing the blues here in the United States and going over to Europe? Well, honestly, we as Americans, we take a lot of our culture for granted, where mm-hmm. there's other places, other countries look at us as the leader in certain things, you know, things that are American, things that originated here. And most of the world do recognize that the blues music originated here in the United States. They say it's the only original music form from the U.S., you know, the blues started here. So people around the world, you know, that admire the blues, they look at the artists here and see who's popular here or who's doing things. And they kind of pattern themselves, uh, judge themselves accordingly. So therefore, if you get a chance to go there and have good performances, they recognize it and they really acknowledge it and make you feel appreciated. I think it's it's absolutely incredible. I mean, in, in the fact that you've been around the world, you've played performances all across the globe. Mm-hmm. Can you Can you look back at your body of work, at your career, is there one performance that stands out among all of the others? Oh, man. Well, I've I had a handful of what I thought were good performances for for me and the band. Okay. Um, got a chance to be part of the uh, Detroit Blues Festival back in, I believe it was 91 or somewhere along in there. And uh, Robin Trower was in the house that night, Robin Trower. Okay. And Johnny Bassett, and I thought that that performance that night was pretty good. I've had some other European uh, performances like in uh, Skopje and places like that that I thought was good. I really had a good time in South America, down in Argentina and Brazil. So some of those have been some of our um, better performances and some of my most uh, memorable performances. I, I have to ask you, uh, because things have changed so much over the last 25, 30 years, um, uh-huh. how has the internet and social media changed the music industry? And would you say it's better, worse, in the middle? 
Well, it, it made it a lot easier for someone that's unknown to be known. I mean, because anybody can uh, get on the internet and anybody can make a record nowadays. So in some ways it made it better, but in some ways it really saturated things and watered things down. So, you know, you, you really have to lean hard on your strength to uh, stay one of the ones that is being recognized. And, you know, if something gets really popular, a lot of time it don't have to be very good to be popular. But if it's popular, then you have to have compatible competition or something that's going to be noticed in amongst whatever's being popularized right now. It makes it, it, makes it tougher to, uh, to stand up, you know, because it broadens the spectrum a whole lot. So now instead of people having, when you got fewer choices, you know, strong product stands up and it's easier to sell and, and market a strong product. But when everything in the market is strong, you've divided the market now. And now, you know, maybe some things that would have been bigger don't get a chance to have the same amount of success. When you look back at things, I mean, to, to see how things have uh, evolved, especially over the last 10 years, and I can see where that would be an extra uh, an extra challenge. Would you say that it was more inspiration for you to to dig deeper into your into your blues? Exactly, that's what it did. It it it, it makes an individual define and refine themselves. Mm-hmm. I'm never very opinionated about my own music. I try to let other people express what they feel about it, but. In my opinion, you know, it makes it tougher to stand up. So it makes me uh, more conscious and make me strive to be better myself. So that's a good thing to keep you always striving to do your best and to do better even than your best. You know, speaking of uh, some of your music, you let people make their own decision. No more crying. Man, I got to tell you, I listened to it with fresh ears this weekend and um, my mom, I lost my mom a little over a year ago. And um, oh, I'm sorry. that song, it, it just spoke to me. And I um, mean, talk about hit you in the feels. <laughs> and, I, and I'm sure that you that wasn't. Was. Go ahead. I'm sorry. It, no, no, no. I'm, I'm listening. I just was going to speak about this song Go in ahead. terms of it's the, it's the truth. And it's something that I don't care who you are. What what uh, political viewpoint you have? Right. What religious uh, denomination that you are is something that unifies us all. None of us are above death itself, and so right. you know that's 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 the subject matter. When you speak the truth and something that everybody can relate with, it can be nothing but the truth. Yeah, that's truth. And that situation affects us all. We all lose our loved one. Yes. And sir. and to what death that it affects us or how we express, you know, it's up to us as the individual, but it, it, it got to hit home, man. And I just, I just tried to tell the truth, you know? Yep. Well, Larry, we have gone through, believe it or not, almost the first episode here, but I would like to have you hang around if you would for a second round. Would you be willing to do that? I'm right here. I'm right here. Great. We're going to go ahead and wrap this one up. We want to thank everybody for being here. Thank you so much for joining us, Larry. We're so glad to have you here. Larry McRae, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to hear more about him, if you want to check out what he's got to offer, check out 
LarryMcCreeLive.com, and also uh, Spotify. If you want to listen to his music before you buy, you can check it out there. You can buy uh, his music right there on the uh, website. You can check out the tour dates and everything else. But again, thank you so much for being with us. That's going to wrap up this edition of Time Signatures with Jim Irvin. We want to thank everybody for listening, and thank you so much for helping us keep the blues alive. This has been Time Signatures with Jim Irvin, presented by the Capital Area Blues Society in Lansing, Michigan. For more information on cabs, visit capitalareablues.org. You can find this episode and past episodes at lccconnect.org. The Time Signatures theme song, Michigan Roads, is used by permission and was written by Root Doctor, featuring Freddie Cunningham. Until next time, keep on keeping the blues alive. Examining the issues and topics that affect our lives from the local level to the world stage. Listen to the programs of LCC Connect anytime at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. For service members ready to make their transition into a civilian career, Lansing Community College helps veterans navigate their educational path with the option to earn college credits for military experience in related fields, personalized support from confidential counseling to help find VA benefits, and fast-track programs in information technology and medical specialties. To find out how, visit lcc.edu and search military credit. Feeling froggy? Well, leap into 20-plus podcasts at lccconnect.org. Art Happens Here, the podcast that explores the often curious and occasionally amazing art installations on, in, and around the campuses of Lansing Community College. I'm your host, Bruce Mackley. Listen to this program and many others on demand at lccconnect.org. If your walls could talk, what would they say? I have held the same mirror for 13 years. I have been decorated with purple dinosaurs, baseball teams, and football helmets. I have witnessed 33 Thanksgiving dinners and one wedding proposal. I have tiny notches marking the growth of three children. I have caused a learning disability. I am the reason that a fifth grader simply can't sit still. I am responsible for a five-year-old's rage. Just because you can't see lead paint doesn't mean it's not on walls, doors, windows, and sills. Today, lead paint poisoning affects over 1 million children. If your home was built before 1978, your family could be at risk. Let's make all kids lead-free kids. Log on to leadfreekids.org or call 800-424-LED. I am the reason a child has trouble hearing. If your walls could talk, what would they say? Brought to you by the Coalition to End Childhood Lead Poisoning, EPA, HUD, and the Ad Council. The Lansing Community College Foundation provides scholarships that make education possible, change students' lives, and uplift our community. The foundation annually accepts scholarship applications from November through January. Learn more at lcc.edu scholarships. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. This is Bob Myers from the Historical Society of Michigan with a Michigan History Moment.
Native Americans living in the Great Lakes region had never seen anything like her. Her name was the Griffin. Many historians consider her the first sailing vessel on the Great Lakes. Her life was short, and her fate remains a mystery to this day. French explorer René Robert Cavalier, Sir de La Salle, sought to extend the fur trade with the Native Americans in the Great Lakes region. Building a sailing ship to carry trade goods and furs would help realize that ambition. In January 1679, La Salle began construction of the Griffin near the mouth of Cayuga Creek on the Niagara River near Lake Erie. He brought in rigging, anchors, chains, cordage, and small cannon that he had carried by barge and then dragged overland to the construction site. La Salle himself oversaw the laying of her keel and drove in the first bolt in her construction. Working during the winter months slowed the work, as did having to use crude tools and green timber. La Salle left his trusted Italian lieutenant, Henri de Tonti, in charge of construction while he returned to Fort Frontenac, at the present-day location of Kingston, Ontario, for more supplies. La Salle and his men finally launched the Griffin in May 1679. The vessel, although tiny by today's standards, astounded the watching Iroquois. They considered her a floating fort and were much impressed by the thunder of her cannon. They dubbed her builders Atkan, meaning supernatural beings. Historians believe that she was probably a 45-ton bark with a single mast about 30 to 40 feet long with a 10 to 15-foot beam. She carried seven small cannon and had the figure of a griffin, a mythical half-lion, half-eagle, mounted on her jib boom. In July 1679, LaSalle and a crew of 34 men set off. They towed the griffin through the Niagara River rapids, made their way across Lake Erie to the Detroit River and Lake St. Clair, and then proceeded up Lake Huron. From Mackinac Island, the griffin sailed across northern Lake Michigan to Green Bay. There, an advanced party of fur traders had collected 12,000 pounds of fur. In September, LaSalle sent the Griffin back to the Niagara River with her cargo of furs. LaSalle himself stayed behind to explore Lake Michigan. He never saw the ship again. She may have wrecked in a storm, or her own crew may have scuttled her and stolen the cargo. Whatever happened to her, the wreck has never been found. The Griffin remains one of the Great Lakes' enduring mysteries. This Michigan History Moment was brought to you by MichiganHistoryMagazine.org. Featuring the staff, faculty, students, and others that helped to make Lansing's premier college what it is today. You're listening to LCC Connect. To find out more about our featured programs or to listen on demand, visit us at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Coming in April to Dart Auditorium, Lansing Community College presents My Emperor's New Clothes by Larry Shu. This musical play for children of all ages is adapted from the story by Hans Christian Andersen. Colorful, brightly comic, and a truly delightful treat. This lively theater piece is filled with funny lines, hummable songs, and fast-paced action. Performances April 5th through the 13th. 
For more information, visit lcc.edu slash showinfo. Ranger Station, Ranger speaking. Hi. I'd like to report a bear hug. Uh, okay. Well, before I left my campsite, I was putting out my fire, and out of nowhere, Smokey Bear showed up and hugged me? So you drowned the fire, you stirred it, drowned it again, and felt that it was cold? Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. He likes it when people correctly put out their campfires. He's pretty big on wildfire prevention. He's just letting you know you did good with a uh, hug. He's a hugger. I just got a bear hug from Smokey Bear. <laughs> Status update! All right, I'm going to let you go now. I've got uh, a lot of uh, ranger stuff to do. There are many ways to start a fire, but one sure way to put it out. Learn how you can do your part at SmokeyBear.com. Only you can prevent wildfires. Sponsored by the U.S. Forest Service Ad Council and your state forester. The Adult Enrichment Program at LCC offers classes in watercolor, creative welding, motorcycle safety, photography, and more. All classes are non-credit. Information about the Adult Enrichment Program is available at lcc.edu slash keeplearning. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. This is Melissa Ford-Lockin. Rosalie Petrowski. Susan, Seraph, and Jess. Editors for the Washington Square Review. Washington Square On Air showcases the poetry and fiction of the latest edition of LCC's literary journal, The Washington Square Review, read by the poets, authors, and editors themselves. Expect the unexpected as our contributors express experience and fantasy with humor, imagination, poetic license, irony, and passion. If you love language at its most original, please join us in our audio town square to celebrate a community of writers spanning from around the world to Lansing. Hey all, this is Melissa Ford Locken, editor from Washington Square Review. Today I have with me Melissa Elms, whose piece, To Belong at the Edge of the World, is in the Summer 23 issue. Thank you for coming, Melissa. It's nice to have you here with us. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Awesome. Could you tell us a little bit about your piece and what was going on in your life when you wrote it? So To Belong at the Edge of the World is a kind of a character study that I started thinking about ideas of place and belonging. Um, I was thinking about ideas of feeling alienated in your own community. I'm not really sure where it came from. I was a military brat growing up. We moved every three or four years um, until I was in high school, and I think it probably has some residual angst being worked through there. But just this sort of idea that you you should belong, but you don't feel like you do. And the idea of feeling a little bit alienated as a result of having different interests and different sort of life expectations from the people around you. And how do you navigate that? I think that's really fascinating because while your examples are very specific in the piece, it's something that everyone can relate to, regardless of if you grow up, you know, by the side of the sea or in the city and it's also something that is cyclical. And I think a person might go through different phases in their life where they feel this kind of disconnect in their community, even, you know, multiple times over a lifetime. I think that, you know, this is sort of this character, it's her first time 
feeling this in this sort of very tangible, visceral way. And I think you're right. I think she's starting on that journey of discovery and rediscovery and rediscovery and kind of continuously trying to reinscribe who she is in the world and what the world is for her. Where did the inspiration come for the seaside aspect? I was just thinking about living at the edge of the world and what would that look like? I think possibly it comes from the, um, the medieval Mappa Mundi, the maps of the world from the Middle Ages. Um, in my day job, I'm a medievalist. I, I do medieval literature and culture. And when I was writing this, we were looking at the global Middle Ages and kind of looking at maps. And I think I was just looking at, you know, in a medieval map of Mundi, in particular, the Western European maps, you have sort of, you know, Jerusalem's at the center of the world and the rest of the world kind of branches out from there. But all around the perimeter, you have this sort of circle of ocean and all it says there is here be monsters, right? And so I was kind of working with that sort of trope of the edge of the world is, is water, right? That's pretty fascinating because in the piece, you do have lives in the water. You mention creatures in the water. So it's the water isn't the edge, really, of the world. It's kind of the edge of the land, but then the world continues out into the water. Talk a little bit about the creatures that you have in the water. So, you know, the water is always teeming with monsters and monstrosity. If you look at, and, and again, this is looking at medieval maps, they always have these incredible sea monsters, giant monsters, small monsters. They're all wonderful to look at. I'm always interested in how there are so many living things and so many ways of living so far beyond what humans can see. Uh, that's kind of one of the things that I'm really fascinated with and preoccupied with as a writer, both in my fiction and my poetry. And so I, I was really thinking about, you know, we have this rich, rich body of folklore in every culture that is adjacent to water about what's in that water, right? And I was kind of pulling from that and thinking about what it's like to live in a culture that both relies on the water for its livelihood and is also in a folkloric sense deeply suspicious of and afraid of that same water, that life-giving water is also a terror. And I think that's so fascinating, that that tension that lies between we need it and we love it and also we're terrified of it. It's just it's something that's always fascinated me. That is really interesting to think about people when they don't go in the water, but they're still affected by the life and the mythology that comes from the water. So it exists in their imagination, but not in their real life. And I think in some ways it's more real because it's imaginary than it would be if you actually encountered something. There's something really incredibly immediate and arresting about these imaginary fears that that humans have across the board about all sorts of things, right? Do you think that's because they can't see them? And in your own imagination, you can create whatever it is that's most maybe terrifying to your unique mind? I do, and I also think it's to do with the deep-seated need that we have to understand things, to classify things and to know where they are and what they are and understand them. And when we don't, we tend to make it up Mm -hmm. or to insist on finding a way to explain it that somehow gives it some kind of sense and assigns us some sort of power over it, right? Whatever it is. I think that's fascinating too. Yeah, that certainly makes sense that the creatures of the sea would linger longer in someone's mind because they can't classify them because they can't see them. And someone else may see the creatures in the sea or the life in the sea or monsters or whatever we call them in a different way. So it's an ongoing conversation with no resolution. Exactly. And it's that lack of resolution and that tension and that that I'm really, really interested in. 
Does that tension exist in other places in your writing? Mostly between people and place and people and people. I'm really interested in the ways that people interact and don't interact. And I'm really interested in the silences in things that are said and things that are not said. I think I tend to kind of try to slip between lines of poetry and lines of fiction and try to find what's going on within and beyond the story as much as in the story. I think I think too much. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that comes out in, in what I'm writing in some ways. Talk a little bit about your process between the fiction and the poetry. What's different about it or what's similar in the way that you do the creations? One of the ways that my fiction is a little bit different from the fiction of others is I am actually more interested in the image and the central image than I am necessarily in the narration. And then with poetry, I'm equally invested in the narrative and the imagery. And I think that that is a distinguishing factor of my work. I generally speaking, and and this is such broad strikes and and it's terrible because you shouldn't simplify (laughs) things, but I think we tend to see poetry as being imagist in nature and fiction as being narrative in nature. And I tend not to, not to make that distinction so much. I tend to start with an image, a snapshot, a photograph, some, some picture in my head that won't go away. And then I start writing to find out why, mm-hmm. <laughs> essentially, that won't go away. And depending on what that why turns into, it's either going to become very clearly a longer prose piece or very clearly a poetic piece, a sort of a shorter, more metaphoric kind of approach to it. Um, but the, it always starts with, with an image, with something that's, that I'm seeing. How do you know which direction you're going to go, fiction or poetry, when you go through the process? Not until, <laughs> not until about the second or third draft. Uh-huh. <laughs> Is it usually an intuitive thing? It's not for me. It's, it's really, you know, I, I'm a discovery writer. I start just by sitting down with the paper and that picture in my head and, and just writing to figure out where it is and what it's doing and why it's there. And then that shapes into being more about the image or more about my response to the image. And then that shapes into being more about what's particularly arresting about the image or why I can't focus on the image and now I'm focusing on my response. And then that kind of turns into, oh, this is going to be a poem. Oh, this is going to be a work of fiction. Oh, this is going to be a creative nonfiction essay. It's a bit of a process. Uh, in some cases it goes quickly. In some cases it it's still going. <laughs> there have been many situations where I've gotten, you know, 10 or 20 pages in and realized this is not a story. This is like a little poem. <laughs> let's Let's scale back. Um, and there have been many places where I've had, you know, a three-line poem, and it's the image still isn't going anywhere. So then I have to keep writing, and then it's not just a poem. Now it's a couple of poems. Now it's a chapbook. Now it's um, going to be a short story as well. And and that same image just moves and shifts into different forms. Some of them are very wily that way. And I think, you know, when I'm thinking about my my first book of poetry, Arthurian Things, it came it actually came out of my scholarship on the Arthurian legend. It started as critical essays, and then what I was trying to figure out wouldn't come through the criticism. And so I started writing fiction and that still wasn't working for it either. And then it just turned into a series of poems and and that fit. And so my work tends to be hybrid and multi-genre and it's really just process of discovery constantly and, and rediscovery. That is one of the things I noticed. You were kind enough to send me some information about your background and 
what you've been working on and what you are working on. And I was really fascinated by the way that you'd gone from the intense academic scholarship and into the creative writing, because a lot of times it's the other way around. And now that you've talked a little bit about your experience of not, it sounds like you were not completely satisfied with what you were getting in the scholarly writing, and then you moved toward the creative. You talk a little bit more about what that was like personally, the way that it felt to move from one. They're not really extremes, but they're, they are quite different. They really are. And, uh, you know, I was one of those sort of very over, as, as you can tell, overthinking <laughs> children, um, deeply preoccupied with, you know, the life of the mind, the world of the mind, what's going on internally, interested in the world as well, and just trying to make sense of it. And as a child, I wrote a lot. And I really thought, I'm going to be a writer, I'm going to be a writer, I'm going to be a writer. And my parents very much encouraged that, but kept also reiterating, well, but you have to have a job and you have to be able to support yourself. (laughs) And I turned the message around in my head to, you can't be a writer because you won't make money and you need money. So I ended up going into teaching. And I think for a long time, you know, I taught K through 12, I taught nine through 12 for most of it. And for a long time, that was enough. And then I got vaguely dissatisfied and then I got really dissatisfied. So I went back to university to get my PhD because I wanted to do the research and the writing and lesson plans weren't enough anymore. And when I went back and got the PhD, that that fit for a long time and it still fits. That's still an important part of, of who I am and, and of my writing. But I think the entire time, what I was looking for was a creative outlet and teaching for a long time was a creative outlet. And then the research and the writing and, and putting together research into, into an article or into a book, that's also a creative outlet. But at some point about three or four years into my career as a professor, I realized, yes, this is great, but I'm also still vaguely dissatisfied and I'm still trying to create something and I'm still trying to push the boundaries of what I'm doing. So I went back to do the MFA and I realized, you know, I came back to my roots. I realized I'm, you know, I'm a myth maker and I'm a storyteller and teaching is storytelling and writing scholarship is storytelling, but I was missing fiction and poetry. I was missing the creative elements. And so I I kind of feel like I've gotten to a place now where I, I understand so much more the trajectory of my career and it makes sense now. I understand what I've been doing and how I've been going about it. Um, and I'm, I'm glad to be where I am, where I can do all of these things that, that are important and they kind of come together and it makes sense to me now. It sounds like you described the process of your your life journey was very similar to your writing journey and that you sit down and you start to do something and then you see where it takes you and then it changes shape and then you look back through. So that's yeah, just the process of discovery, <laughs> right? It's Absolutely. Just discovery. <laughs> I love that because often people think that successful writers are very um, planned and they always have an outline and they know what they're going to do and then they sit down to write it. But that cuts short that whole discovery process. And I think some people end up discouraged when they sit down. And I love that you said that you wrote 20 pages and then you're like, oh, this isn't what I want. (laughs) Because a lot of people, the idea of writing 20 pages and then having it not be the final product, they would they might see that as a failure because it's not what they wanted. But sometimes you just have to make a giant mess in order to clean it up. I think you just summed up my entire adult life. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's what we're here for. <laughs> 
I think especially for non-traditional writers, you know, people have this tendency to think, well, I'm too old or I should have done this sooner or, you know, there's a lot of regret involved in coming to it a little bit later. I think, though, when you look back, you realize you have been writing all the time. Maybe you haven't been writing for publication, but, you know, there's never been a time when I wasn't scribbling away at creative work. It's just it was it was getting to a point where I felt that I had a point of view that was mine and I felt that the genres that I was writing in were appropriate for what I was trying to accomplish with each piece of writing. And then I got to a point where I realized that I don't have to choose in terms of this or that. I just have to choose what the appropriate vehicle is for what I'm trying to do right now. And I think that was the most liberating moment. (laughs) And it happened during my MFA and it was because of some of the coursework that I was taking. And it was just so liberating to realize that the messages that I had received or that I had created out of the messages I was receiving from, from my parents and from the society at large about writers and writing were not correct. And that it was possible to, to do this and, and be very satisfied in what you were doing without necessarily having to be, you know, Stephen King or Neil Gaiman in (laughs) order to accomplish what you were trying to accomplish. I'm interested in what you were saying about the, um, the experience of getting the MFA. It sounded like that, you were getting a different community surrounding your work. Could you talk a little bit about what it was like to have that different community and specifically like, what did it look like this other community that liberated you? Yeah, no, I mean, it was, you know, the MFA was entirely for me. I didn't tell anybody except my husband that I was doing it. Like it was, it was like this little (laughs) sort of, and the reason that I did that is because the reason I went back to get my MFA was the same reason I went back to get my PhD, which was I have, terrible imposter syndrome. And I feel like I need the credentials that society thinks that you have to have in order to do the things and be taken quote unquote seriously or be viewed as a quote unquote real scholar or real writer. And, you know, for me, that was the correct path because I needed that. I don't necessarily recommend it for everybody. If you don't need that, then don't do it. Right. But I did need it. And what the MFA gave me was it gave me a responsibility to myself to get things done that I otherwise wouldn't put time and effort into because I wouldn't have time for it because I had to spend my time on my family or I had to spend my time on my work for, for my day job. But here I was taking courses and I had to produce pages because I had to workshop them. And that essentially gave me permission to write what I wanted to write and not feel like I was stealing time from other things that were quote unquote more important. And the community that I had, you know, I did it through Lindenwood because why not? You know, I I could do it with the faculty tuition benefits. And what I found was I found a community of writers who got together once a week. I took a once a week on on ground class. And that moment was really it was it was ritualistic and it was sacred. And it was it was a place for us to just leave our outside world behind and focus on writers and writing. And for me, that was the space that I needed to start making sense of what I was trying to accomplish and how I could accomplish it within the parameters that I had already inscribed upon myself. You know, I had a family I had to be responsible for. I had a career that I had to be responsible for, but also the ones that are put on you by society. As long as I was doing this for a degree and for credit, then it was legitimate work that needed to be done. And, And somewhere along the way, 
my professors and my my colleagues, my peers in the program helped me get to that point, that point that I needed to get to where it was crossing the threshold into, no, I actually don't need to justify this in any way because I am a writer and writers write and therefore it doesn't require justification. I'm just going to sit down and take this time and do this thing that I need to do. I'll forever be grateful because I don't think I would have done it if I hadn't taken that that degree because I don't think I would have ever given myself the the right to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, that's just my personal trajectory. I think that brings us a little bit back to the piece that's in our issue is because the the voice in the piece is also struggling with the imposter syndrome and, and the value of their work and what is the value of their work. And I think that, that that's something that resonates with a lot of people, especially creative people, because it's hard to balance your responsibility and your family and your obligations and what society tells us is important with the own, you know, the creative drive that lives inside yourself. Yeah. And, you know, I'm thinking about it now also in context, you know, with the, the sag after strikes and the writer strikes and, you know, people, people's responses to them, you know, I'm a hundred percent pro strikers, you know, don't be a scab, don't cross that line. There are so many people who are up in arms and they're like, well, uh, you knew what you were getting into when you went into this job and, um, well, you need to be producing the content and you have responsibilities. And there's this interesting conflict between society wants the writers and the artists, but they don't want to give the writers and the artists the time, space and, and financial stability that they need to create. And so I think, you know, when I'm looking at this piece in that context, it, it strikes me as even more resonant because here we have this girl who does not feel that she's valued for what she brings to the table. And yet her community could, if they allowed her to be happy with these stories that she's telling and be entertained by them and, and have that artistic creativity among them. Um, and I, I just feel like that's, there's a lot of that going on in our society now that makes the story kind of resonate more strongly for me. It reminds me of what you were saying earlier about how even teaching is storytelling, because it is. You know, in order to communicate with students, we need to frame things in a way that makes sense. And essentially, that is that is a story, you know? That is a story, absolutely. <laughs> so it's a, a beautiful thing that in different contexts doesn't get the value and respect that it really should. Because as you said, people desire it and they, they want it and they long for it. And it's the thing that brings us together as humans. Absolutely, yeah. I wanted to kind of go um, back a little bit, and you mentioned that you didn't tell anyone, aside from your husband, that you were working on the MFA. So it sounds to me like that kind of created a little sacred space for you and your creative work. Was keeping it separate from the academic work and your real life, you know, your real life work, or whatever we're going to call that, did that help your productivity? Um, Not in terms of just the creative work, but it kind of busted some dams open that needed to be busted open across the board. I realized that my scholarship was the writing that I wanted to do. It just wasn't the only writing that I wanted to do. So that was helpful because I had been a little bit stymied in that. Um, I realized that I, I didn't only want to produce critical scholarship. I also did want to write about teaching, which was something that I had been cautioned against doing too much of. Mm. Um, but what I one of the things I think that was essential for me was realizing that the way that I conceive of my writing across the board is I'm a critical creative or a creative critical. You can put it either way. And I, I'm opting not to differentiate between them the way that I used to. I used to place a very hard wall between my scholarly work and my creative work. 
but realizing that I was using my scholarly work to fuel my creativity and as a, a funnel or a channel for my creativity made me realize that they're mutually synergistic. I don't do creative work without critical thinking and I don't do critical work without creative thinking. And so I'm going forward. Um, I've opted to, to kind of just understand that I'm a hybrid. I work, I work in the middle. I work, um, kind of through both areas in, in all aspects of my work. And I think it's better for it. I think that's, that's my voice and that's my style. And that is, that is my contribution. I'm really happy with that. I'm, I'm happy with where that has gone since I finished my MFA, I've been more productive across the board in all areas because I don't, I don't force it in any one area. They all work together. And I think that's the, for me, that's the best place for me to be working from. That does sound really, really awesome. What are you working on currently right now? Oh my goodness. So right now I, you know, like everyone else, right. So I'm working on my novel. Yes, of course. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I'm working on a collection of short stories that are, it's a kind of a linked novel, a novel linked in short stories. I'm working on um, a couple of potential poetry chapbooks. Um, I'm not sure exactly where they're going right now, but one of them is two sisters who have been diagnosed with breast cancer who are kind of navigating their own trajectory and also their sort of stressed, strained relationship with each other through this. And then in terms of scholarship, I'm working on a collection of essays that I've brought together contributors who are doing this critical creative hybrid. So they're selecting a medieval text that they love that's not one of the sort of canonical big texts and talking about just personally why they love them and sort of melding the professional and the personal. And uh, I'm working on my monograph, which is on violence and feasting in medieval literature. So several things in the mix right now. That sounds like a good mix to keep you busy for sure. I'll be busy. (laughs) If listeners would like to connect with you online, where can they find you? So I am on X, formerly known as Twitter and Instagram and threads and Blue Sky Social, all at M Ridley Elms, R-I-D-L-E-Y-E-L-M-E-S. Okay, great. We'll post those in the show notes so that people can find you online and follow up with all of your projects and just hang out and check you out on social media. So sounds good. Yeah. Thank you very much for coming and talking with us today. We appreciate your spending time with us and sending us your piece. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to our talented poets and authors. Until next time, this has been Washington square on air we showcase selections from Lansing Community College's Literary Journal, The Washington Square Review, a publication featuring writers from the Great Lakes State, across the nation, and around the world. To find out more about The Washington Square Review, visit lcc.edu WSR. We hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed sharing. Sharing the voices of Lansing Community College. Visit us at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. The Cesar Chavez Learning Center's Access Program at Lansing Community College creates a community on campus for underrepresented students 
providing them with a support network and multiple layers of academic, social, and professional experiences. Access also incorporates workshops and resources that assist in educational and career advancement. To find out more about Access, visit lcc.edu and search Access Program. Thank you for listening to LCC Connect. I'm Paul Schwartz, and I host a show called The Safety Plan. The Safety Plan is about the latest cyber scams and how to avoid them. You can catch The Safety Plan here on LCC Connect or listen anytime at lccconnect.org. Lansing Community College welcomes transfer students. Transfer students may apply prior credits toward their LCC degree, certificate, or transfer program. Learn more at lcc.edu slash you belong. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. It's time for another edition of Equity. Equity is a play on words spelled E-Q-U-I dash T-E-A. Why? Because I just love sharing a good cup of tea. Equity is designed to provide you with tips on issues surrounding diversity, equity, and inclusion to enhance your everyday life. Today on Equity, we're going to talk about some diversity and inclusion tips for leaders just like you. Tip number one, give your time and attention to colleagues who want to support diversity, equity, inclusion. Don't ignore them. In fact, it's always a good practice for you as leaders to assess and do a temperature check, if you will, on your environment, your employees, your colleagues, and find out what are they valuing when it comes to diversity. Number two. Balance the time you spend supporting everyone on your team. Be sure to make conscious efforts that every person's ideas, thoughts, and even projects are valued. Take time to make notes and records as a leader to ensure every person is having quality time with you and has your full and undivided attention. Number three, and being a DEI leader and developing these skills, you want to spread the responsibility of the organization evenly. Don't give one or two or even a group of individuals more work than you would give the norm. It's important because it allow everyone in the organization to have an inclusive lens and feel as if that they're valued. Number four. Listen to all complaints about bias and discrimination. As a leader, it's our responsibility to take every person's concern seriously, especially when it relates to bias and discrimination. And lastly, number five, take a stand against inappropriate behavior. Yes, we've heard this term before, but I'll say it again. When you see something, say something. When you hear something inappropriately, say something. Taking a stand against inappropriate behavior not only mitigates the bias in your workplace, but as a leader, it demonstrates that you know what's really most important, and that's people. And so these are just a few tips on how you can use DEI as a leader. Hope you'll take them lightly and take them into heart. Now go ahead and grab your favorite cup of tea and take a sip on all of these great tips. This has been another edition of Equa Tea. We'll see you next time.
This has been a presentation of LCC Connect, a weekly program that features the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College. All shows featured on LCC Connect are recorded at the WLNZ Studio, located on LCC's downtown campus. Each program is podcast-based and can be heard anytime at lccconnect.org. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on one of our shows, connect with us by emailing lcc-connect at lcc.edu.